0: You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. John Bergen from Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled, The Career of Dennis Maloney. 1650 to 1726. An Irish Catholic lawyer and agent in London.
1: So I'm going to talk about a single lawyer and agent called uh, Dennis Maloney. few lawyers leave papers, so it's often a matter of piecing together a career from letters which survive in the papers of clients. These will tend to be landowners, and scattered references in official, especially legal, records. Maloney happens to be quite well documented And in some respects he's the archetype of a whole series of Irish Catholic lawyers in 18th century London. Uh, The cases we can know of now could only be a tiny fraction of his business, but they do illustrate certain points and give the flavour of this kind of work. There are many interesting sides to Maloney which I'll have to pass over rather quickly to concentrate on his career as lawyer and agent. He was born in 1649 or 50, based on his age at death in his epitaph, but we know very little about him until he was 33 years old. He came from a family of um, middling Catholic gentry who lived in Tulla, County Clare. The only notable thing about the family was his great-uncle and uncle, both called John Maloney, both prominent bishops and both with strong connections with Irish priests in France and especially at the University of Paris. The first Bishop Maloney died in 1651 at the Siege of Limerick when Dennis was an infant. The second Bishop Maloney lived until Dennis was over 50 and was uh, certainly, I think, a very influential figure in the nephew's life. The first documented event in Dennis's career was his graduation as Master of Arts in Paris in 1683, Um, but this could only have occurred after a lengthy course of study. It seems reasonable to assume that Maloney, a clever boy, went to France as a protégé of his uncle, with whom he maintained a close connection. Next, in the autumn of 1687, Dennis registered at the Faculty of Law in the University of Paris. However, he was around the same time, a few weeks earlier, admitted to Grey's Inn, in London and it would seem that he was undecided as to where his future lay in the event it was to be in London as a practitioner of the common law apart from one trip to France in the 1690s he seems to have spent his remaining 39 years in London he was studying to qualify himself for the bar probably intending to practice in Ireland while he was studying in London King James was deposed and Ireland went to war his elder brother died in Limerick and the elder brother's property some of which would have come to Dennis was forfeit Maloney's younger brother, however, a captain in the O'Brien Regiment, qualified under the articles to keep his lands in County Clare. In 1691, after four years studying at Gray's Inn, Dennis found himself as a Catholic, debarred from practising at the bar by a new law passed in the aftermath of King William's victory, of which has had a good deal to say. Instead of becoming a barrister, Maloney became a chamber counsel, a lawyer who could not plead in court but who could prepare opinions and advise on the law. He also acted as an agent for clients who needed to be represented in London. Uh, Many, but by no means all of these, were Irish Catholics who had served King James, attempting to preserve their property from forfeiture. Apart from the disability of being barred as a Catholic from pleading in court, Maloney's sphere of work was only constrained by his ability, and he appears to have been an able lawyer. He moved effortlessly through different arenas, preparing opinions, devising strategies and cultivating persons of influence. Some of these were public figures. He was by no means overawed, for example, when one of the secretaries of state summoned him to his office in Whitehall to discuss the business of one of Maloney's Irish clients. We may be sure that he also made it his business to cultivate the various minor officials, clerks, doorkeepers, ushers and others whose assistance would be invaluable in dealing with official bodies. The picture here depicts the um, English Court of Chancery. I have not actually found evidence of Maloney advising in chancery suits, but I would be astonished if he did not. And he was certainly named in at least one chancery suit, while his own estate was to be the subject of several chancery suits after his death. In 1697, a bill came from the Irish Parliament to be considered in London. It would have restricted even further the scope for Catholic lawyers in Ireland by debarring them from chamber practice. The bill was considered by the Lords Justices of England an inner group of privy councillors to whom government was entrusted when King William was absent on the continent and Maloney was one of three Irish Catholic lawyers who persuaded three great English noblemen, each a powerful minister, to intervene on their behalf and the clause was struck out of the bill. It was the Earl of Romney, a former Viceroy of Ireland, who raised Maloney's case. Um, John Galby's name was uh, appeared on at least one of Owen's slides, you might have noticed. There are a couple of runs of letters which survive in the papers of Maloney's clients, and one of these was the County Clare grandee, Sir Donat O'Brien, a Protestant of Gaelic stock. When around 1689 Irishmen were forced to choose between King James and King William, uh, most Irish Protestants plumped quickly for William. Sir Donat O'Brien appeared to hesitate. Questions over his allegiance continued to haunt him for years afterwards, and a bizarre adventurer from County Clare named Patrick Hurley made very grave accusations of seditious and treasonable activity against... O'Brien in 1700 and these had to be considered seriously by the authorities in London and in Dublin O'Brien mounted a vigorous defence which included retaining very able lawyers in Ireland and in London Uh, Maloney moved with ease among London's political and legal classes whom he consulted and lobbied regularly on behalf of Sir Sir Donat or Sardona in County Clare, Sir Donat was always the spelling or the version of the name preferred by Dennis Maloney, who seems to have known him pretty well, so I should probably stick with that in County Clare, Sir Donat was very much dependent on maloney 's political intelligence advice, and interventions, and he expected pretty much a free hand really in looking after sir donat 's interests i mean this is just there are several passages like this in his letters, and the people like I hardly elaborate on the significance of the people named here. Um, and, you know, Maloney wanted letters, but he would decide when they were to be delivered. He would be the judge of the circumstances in which it would be useful for Sir Donald's interest to deliver letters to the likes of the Duke of Ormond um, and the future Chief Secretary. Um, as a as a clerk of the English Privy Council, I would suspect uh, that... Um, Maloney already knew him, he would have been very important. he was also an irish m p but he served i think one term a year as a, a clerk at the Privy Council so he would have, he would have met lots of the people that uh, that Owen has been mentioning, and he would have known Maloney um, and of course, in, in, in bodies like this, the clerk is likely to be more important and influential than, than all but the most active members of the council because he can control business and the timing of petitions and so on. Edmund Malone was mentioned by Owen. Uh, he, he wasn't permanently in London, I think I'm correct in saying, and certainly around this date, he was back in Dublin and he was one of two lawyers. Um, along. Well, along Maloney and Malone were jointly employed by Sir Donat O'Brien. Um And I think that Malone and Maloney must have known each other Uh, from London. The Inns of Court were a small world. They worked assiduously on behalf of their Protestant client to defeat the villainous Patrick Hurley. Um, The issue here is that they obviously had squared the Attorney General, Sir Thomas Trevor, uh, but Edmund Malone got news quite accurate and quite promptly in Dublin uh, that there was a new Attorney General. If that was the case, Maloney better get into him quick. Uh, and give him a fee of 20 guineas um, to fix him well in our interest. It might sound like a small enough fee, but like I've no doubt there would have been a steady flow of these You know, every time the case took a twist and a turn. So I don't think even the, the great Attorney General of England would have been... Uh, in any case, you may be sure that these guys knew exactly what the requisite fee was on every occasion. Um, uh, and I find myself, I mean, since we didn't have the chance to compare our papers beforehand, I find myself uh, repeating some of the points already made. So I had next written, for most professional purposes, being a Catholic made no difference to Maloney. However, at times of tension, Catholics might find it prudent to be less visible. Occasionally, this was uh, legally ordained. Um, In January 1702, a proclamation banished Catholics or persons in my circumstances, as Maloney put it. He loved these coy circumlocutions um, from London. But Maloney wrote to assure his client Sir Donat that he would suffer nothing by it and an English Protestant gentleman would be retained temporarily for any public appearances required. And, yes, I would agree that um, lobbying, it would be anachronistic. The the word lobbying wasn't used, but it does strike me when I look at this that really the essentials of lobbying don't change very much in the last 300 years. And I would also notice here, yes, an English Protestant gentleman who shall follow any divisions appear in it publicly at the lobby and elsewhere. So, I mean, this is, of course, the, the derivation of lobbying and... Uh, The word lobbyist, uh, people appearing in the lobby of Parliament. This was where, and you do see other references in Maloney's letters, you know, intercepting people in the lobby. Uh, Presumably there were conventions, there were places where you were allowed to wait upon them, to ambush them. Um, This proclamation enforcement doesn't seem to have been too strict because um, Maloney's back in business at Parliament six weeks later. This letter shows something of Maloney's character. He had a very good opinion of himself, uh, of his legal expertise, and even of his political judgment. He could be deferential to his clients, but also rather bossy. And on this occasion, he um, reprimands his clients, Sir Donat. In fact, he refers to an earlier letter where he's chastised him and says, I won't (coughs) chastise you again. And then he goes on to do precisely that. But what particularly intrigues me is um, his vantage point for listening to debates in the House of Commons. I think this does tell you something. Um Maloney himself um, got a private act of parliament in 1702. Um, he petitioned, the, there are two different versions of, of his petition here. He wanted one of two things, either special permission to practice at the Irish bar or to be allowed to have a thousand pounds, which his uncle the bishop had intended to give him, but which was forfeit because his uncle was outlawed. Um, I think there's three versions of this petition. Um, he complains that after four years of study at Gray's Inn to qualify himself as a barrister, an act of parliament barred him from the profession. Had he been in arms in Ireland, he comments, he might have qualified under the Articles of Limerick, but because he was in London, he was ineligible, which seemed unfair to him. Um, he got his Act of Parliament. It did not grant him permission to become a barrister. You can imagine that was never going to happen. If they'd granted that to Maloney, there would have been a string of petitions. And I think controversy in Ireland. I think the Irish Parliament would have been unhappy. But he did get the money. And uh, looking at the uh, journals of the House of Commons, you can identify some of the MPs who were promoting the bill. And funnily enough, they um, were members of Grazy, and some of them at least were. I've not said much about penal laws or the lobbying of Irish Catholics against them in London for the simple reason that Maloney's not mentioned with them in connection until 1703. He may well have had some role in the 1690s, and he was certainly about to play a leading role on behalf of Irish Catholics collectively just have to go back a paragraph here, for obvious reasons the evidence of Catholic lobbying tends to be sketchy it was prudent for both Catholics and Protestants who were sympathetic to them to commit as little to paper as they could the post was watched and though Maloney himself went to elaborate lengths to avoid official interception of his letters, the authorities sometimes succeeded and in the summer of 1703 they in- intercepted the instructions the Irish had given to their agents upon the bill sent over unfortunately they don't, they don't survive we all know how frustrating it is in the calendars of state papers to see enclosure no longer present and I can assure you I've looked at the original state papers as well and it's not there. Um, Irish Protestants were apprehensive of Catholic influence and the Irish government appointed its own agent in London named William Wogan and his letters give a most vivid picture of the contending forces of Catholics and Protestants in London in the winter of 1703 to 4. Wogan was an earnest young man, somewhat overawed by the Popish agents Maloney and Sexton. Uh, they were much more experienced than he was. Incidentally, solicitor here doesn't have quite its modern meaning, I think. It's really just another word for agent. A solicitor might be a lawyer, but I don't think, you know, I, I don't think all of these terms have quite the meaning they do now. A barrister at law is a distinct uh, category of legal practitioner. Uh, an attorney is. Chamber practice is beginning to be recognized, but words like solicitor can be a bit misleading. Um, Sexton here was Peter Sexton a native of Clonmel and apparently Maloney's equal in legal and political skill but much less well documented unfortunately. The two lawyers appeared in the name of Catholic noblemen, and if I'm right I think we've already heard at least one, maybe both of those Noblemen's names, yeah Um, The Noblemen provided social weight and probably political and other connections but the arguments we may be sure were devised by the lawyers who almost certainly penned the various petitions the Attorney-General got a bit huffy when he heard that the Speaker of the Irish House of Commons had complained of great sums of money raised by Papists in opposing the bill in London, and he saw this as a reflection which must fall upon himself, and he actually threatened to go on a kind of strike about this business. So who was the Attorney-General? Well, he was Edward Northey, the very one who was to be fixed in our interest with a, a little bong of 20 guineas uh, on behalf of Sir Donald O'Brien. Was Maloney and Sexton, Maloney's and Sexton's lobbying successful? That's a complicated question, and I think, I think like the others, I'm concentrating more on process, and we, really, really, we have to today. Um, the 1704 Popery Act, the first of the great Popery Acts, was a setback for Catholics, but I think we could say it almost certainly would have been worse if it wasn't for Catholic interventions. Um, the bill was returned to Dublin, where Catholics were heard by their council against it in both houses, though there was no chance the Irish Parliament would reject it. Again, we've seen all of these names before Um, Councillor Malone. Well, Councillor is a title that might be granted to um, Chamber Council because effectively, though he had been a barrister in Ireland, as you explained, because of the accident of the Galway Articles, he couldn't be any more. So, again, there's an intermingling of public and private business, or at the very least the people who are conducting public Catholic business and private Catholic business are the same individuals, and sometimes there's a collective interest, and sometimes there's an individual interest. Perhaps sometimes it's hard to distinguish them. Um, In 1705, more popery bills arrived in London, and the English Privy Council was petitioned by Maloney and George Matthews, a Catholic kinsman of the Duke of Ormond, and their petition was granted. They were to get copies of the bills and to be heard against them, Um, there's, a really, there's so much work to be done in assessing the efforts of Irish Catholics in resisting penal legislation. They did have victories, most of these were in London, and certainly Irish Protestants were not being paranoid when they complained that Catholics were able to undermine penal legislation by appealing to English politicians to exercise their powers of veto and amendment. They were much used, and it was very much to the benefit of Catholics. They used every political and legal stratagem open to them, including appeals to the English House of Lords and the promotion of private acts in the English Parliament. We saw that Maloney got a private act himself. It's very likely, I would say, almost certain that he promoted such bills for other parties. There's a letter by Maloney, the original of which I haven't yet traced but hope to, which it must refer to the George Matthews just mentioned, the Catholic kinsman of Ormond, this slide reproduces a passage from a general history of English Catholicism. Matthews thought he was being treated particularly unfairly under the Irish Penal Code, I think particularly the 1704 Act, and he sought and obtained relief by means of a, a private act of the British Parliament. The, the author of this book, quite reasonably, um, uh, lays, thought that Maloney's advice was sensible that it would be unwise for an Irish Catholic to publish pamphlets appealing, if you like, to the English Parliament, to override the Irish Parliament. Um, Maloney thought that Matthews might get an unpleasant surprise, but in fact um, Matthews was successful. So Maloney was not infallible, though he often spoke as if he was, or wrote as if he was. There is intermittent evidence of contact between Maloney and English Catholics, It's a curious question on which I'm still somewhat undecided, the tenor of relations between English and Irish Catholics. English Catholics were generally wealthier than their Irish counterparts. Some English Catholic families were very grand indeed. On the other hand, they were often educated together on the continent, the families sometimes intermarried, but I do think that English Catholics tended to think that they were a cut above Irish Catholics in general. Um, On the other hand, the better-off Irish Catholics living in England did not have a sense of separateness from their English counterparts and there was not the slightest hint of national antagonism. That simply didn't exist. So when the Swinburne's North County gentry baronets wanted a lawyer to advise them, Dennis Maloney was recommended to them. There's no evidence that he ever travelled to meet them, though he had consultations with Lady Swinburne's sister in London. He managed their law business quite comfortably from his own chambers. Um, The... Oh, and I think this won't surprise you that one of the arguments used uh, in the case was that the lands which they were trying to get back should never have gone to a certain relation because he was a Catholic. So they were Catholics trying to defend their position by the technicality that there had been a breach of penal laws in the first place. Um, These paradoxes didn't trouble them at all. Um, There's a rather long letter here, which really just to give you the flavour of Maloney's uh, one of Maloney's letters to these English clients. Um, he's you know he he knows he speaks uh, country attorneys are some way below uh, Maloney of course but he's giving advice on what needs to be done at their end Uh, they need to find counsel Mm -hmm. who goes on that circuit he knows the recorder of Lancaster he's a friend of his this man is identifiable and is actually known to have been friendly with a lot of Catholics and suspected of having Jacobite sympathies So if the Swinburne's want him, Maloney will write to him and he'll do the business for them. Maloney is intrigued to know who recommended him to the Swinburne's. He'd love to know, but he doesn't dare to ask outright, but he drops hints in a few of the letters. Um, Maloney, at this point, is 70 years of age. He does not need the money, um, but perhaps he just doesn't fancy retirement. Um, I should say, it seems that the, um, the, the... the particular uh, legal strategy being followed, it does not appear to have been successful at the North Thumberland Assizes, as the writ of ejectment wasn't obtained, but the case rumbled on, um, so again uh, Maloney uh, once again was not I suppose infallible um, oh, I, I might say also that um, two of the lawyers that uh, Maloney consulted in this case were Edward Northey, whom we've had, heard mentioned a couple of times, he's now an ex-Attorney General, uh, but he's still in private practice, and also Sir Constantine Phipps, whom you mentioned, a former Irish Lord Chancellor, who was a very high Tory indeed, detested a bet war of Irish Protestants, um, actually didn't have the reputation in Ireland of being particularly pro-Catholic, but he did have the reputation of being um, a Jacobite sympathiser. Um, in these days, obviously, having been a... Previously, a Lord Chancellor did not uh, prevent you returning to practice at the bar. There was no difficulty about that. Maloney, as I say, was aged about seventy when he advised the Swinburnes. I have not come across any later business he undertook. He was apparently ill for some years before his death, and presumably he dropped his practice and uh, perhaps enjoyed the pleasures of his library, of which more in a moment. Like several other important lawyers, he never married. But the life of a bachelor lawyer in the inns of court was probably quite pleasant. I'm sorry, I don't have a better reproduction of this. I suspect it's a depiction of chambers in the Inns of Court. I'd like to find out more about it. I've got this reproduction from a, a thesis. Um, Maloney himself was immersed in the Inns of Court. He began in Grey's Inn, moved to Lincoln's Inn for some years before returning to Gray's Inn, where he stayed till his death. After the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715, the uh, property of Catholics had to be registered, including Maloney's lease of his chambers in Lincoln's Inn, And if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the lives in his lease, Thomas Pose, I think we saw his... Yeah, I think so. so. Uh, The middle one is just from the uh, records. um, He he apparently had a habit of appearing in the (coughs) hall of Lincoln's Inn in a bar gown, but not having been called to the bar, he wasn't entitled to. This is typical Maloney. Um, So he must appear at the next council. (coughs) The next council meeting is recorded. Nothing happened. So... um, and the one at the end, uh, Maloney, um, explaining that uh, apparently some kind of procedural faux pas committed by the forfeitures commissioners, um, it caused some mirth in the inns of court. Well, this must be a lawyer's joke because I don't get it, but I, I, I can imagine them all chorting into their port um, at, the, at the ignorance of the forfeitures commissioners somehow. He had a considerable library, which was sold a couple of years after his death, um, I won't say too much about the detail of this because it was laboriously edited by Liam and myself. It's one of these things, I do wonder now, several years later, whether anyone has noticed it. It was a lot of work, I can tell you. Anyway, it's in Analecta Hibernica a few years ago. Um, But one thing I would like to mention is, one of the works in the library was the Great Historical Dictionary, published in 1701, which has a substantial entry on the O'Brien family running to about 4,000 words. Um, This was the project of Jeremy Collier, a distinguished non-juring clergyman of the Church of England, and Maloney's somewhat eulogising account of the family uh, might be seen as an extension of his work as an agent and an attempt to repair any damage done by the allegations of Jacobite leanings. But it was also a serious historical essay with source citations, and it deals impartially with the different with the Protestant branches of the family, Inchiquin's, Thomans, Sardonnay, as well as Catholic branches, including the Clares in exile with James II. And uh, by a remarkable chance, the manuscript uh, survives, a corrected manuscript. Um, a marginal note here says, on the right-hand side, all the following genealogical account I have out of, out of Mr. Hickey's book of genealogies, which I have by me now, and it is a curiosity worth Mr. Collier's or any other sagacious gentleman's perusal. Uh, and the, it's up the thing has obviously been copied by a clerk or something but the handwriting in the margin is most certainly Maloney's um, and there are differences between this and the published account and they're they're curious um, Collier removes some passages specifically references to offices held by some of the O'Briens during King William's reign so the Irish Catholic Maloney wished to glorify all the honors of the O'Briens including those enjoyed in King William's reign the English Protestant Collier was a strict Jacobite who seems to have regarded 1688 as a kind of year zero and he struck out any mention of offices held by the O'Briens under King William. Um, Maloney was a proud author. He announced the imminent publication of the historical dictionary in a letter to Sir Donat um, and well, wanted him to buy the book. One, one last little extract from the writings of Maloney Just I assume that he was a Jacobite in any commonly sense understood sense of the word, and yet this is what I call Maloney's Anglophile side. This is on the succession of Queen Anne. The wisdom of the people of England, he praises, and it's wonderful to see how calmly things go on here. Um, he's deeply impressed by the orderly um, transition and how every possible requirement has been anticipated to reassure England's allies that it was business as usual. Um, and he refers to King William as this great prince who was the life of their confederacy. Curious language, I would have thought, for a, a Jacobite. So, almost finished, um, just death notices. Again, these people, Sexton, his collaborator in 1704, died a few years later. London was a big city. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny number of people had their deaths notice, uh, noticed in the newspapers, unless something remarkable happened to them, like they were you know, run over by a cart in the street or something, um, Madame de Cunha, despite her name, of course, was an Irish woman, a member of the Kenmare family, so it would seem Maloney wasn't doing well in the later years. Um, Maloney's epitaph. I like the ambiguity of lived faithful to God, king and country. I suppose you can take that as you will. Um, He's buried with his nephew, who was his residuary legatee and who died a few years after him. And just finally, I'll leave you with a few snippets from his will. Um, Maloney's will... It shows how rooted he is in Ireland, which he may not have visited since childhood, but he's in close with his relations. Um, He leaves £50 to the bishop's poor relations, but he'd had a legacy from the bishop himself. Um, He mentions only Catholics, it would appear, although they do include an English Catholic friend, Mr. Turberville, who gets his horse. I like the little picture of the embassy chapels and the service and office that must be performed there and the poor begging at the chapel door. Um, who are these people? Were they Irish? You know, We really have no idea. We actually know almost nothing about the operation of the uh, embassy chapels, except that they were the most important um, places of Catholic worship. Maloney has not forgotten that he's a Master of Arts of the University of Paris and what he is due there. Um, he does not mention his brother, James Maloney, um, who has apparently conformed to the Church of Ireland. He's not in the convert rules. That may be significant, but uh, I would always be cautious of drawing inferences in these cases. So, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tutorstuartireland.com.